So, Matt, uh, how many people call you, like, Matt Luder or some other weird pronunciation of your name? Because literally everyone that I work with, I, I think you're the only one that can say my name correctly. Yeah, I have the benefit of working with quite a few people called Omani, so uh, I, 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 I'm well-schooled in, in not to say O'Mahoney or whatever people say. <laughs> O'Mahoney. What do you get? Uh, I get O'Mahoney. Like, some people can't say... Omaha, oh, right? Um, it's O'Mahony, so, like... Or it's, like, yeah. O'Mahony. I get the Americans. <laughs> There's no E in it, so it's, uh, it, it, it's O'Mahony. O'Mahony. Um, true, true blue Irish. Yeah, I got... Fuck um, off, Matt. <laughs> I got, uh... I got Loader for a while, because there was a guy who was on MTV called Kurt Loader with 1D. Yeah, so I, I got of MTV rocks. Yeah, so I got called. I got called loader occasionally, um, but I've generally mm. been. I've generally been pretty pretty lucky with that. Yeah, and f- perfect uh, way into our episode because it starts with a correction, a historical misnomer. Literally, uh, we Matt, do you want to introduce our topic and why we've opened with this? Well, yeah. So we've been we've been talking about doing. Um, uh, talking about artists who've influenced tattooing and this uh, topic of today's uh, episode has been top of our list for very early on and um there is a big discussion about whether his name should be pronounced uh giga or geiger and um our guest today uh miroslava hartmund who will give her her biography in a minute um schools us and tells us the definitive answer um miro what is what is the correct pronunciation <laughs> Well, the, cr- the correct pronunciation is most definitely Giga. I have it on authority from the HR Giga Museum and the HR Giga <laughs> Estate. And the reason that Geiger has caught on as badly as it has uh, is because that is how he was announced at the 1980 Oscars uh, when he collected the Oscar right. for Best Visual Effects for the 1979 Alien film directed by Ridley <laughs> Scott. Um, so the Americans are to blame for this as well as other things. Uh, so we are trying to cor- course correct, and of course we will stick to HR Giga, HRG. It's all good as long as it's not Geiger. <laughs> and tell us about yourself. So, like, uh, what authority do you have to talk about this um, Swiss artist? As uh, Good question. Uh, so my name is Miroslava Hartmund. I'm an art advisor, curator, and a creative consultant. And... I've been working with the Giga Estate since about 2015 when we started putting together um, the first retrospective of his work in Ukraine. And we were working towards 2019, which was the 40th anniversary of the Alien movie. And it was a breakthrough project because it was the first time that Swiss government funding was given to support an exhibition of Giga's. Um, He kind of famously has a really difficult relationship with the Swiss establishment, um, so <laughs> the Swiss embassy in Ukraine on board to give us the chance to use, you know, diplomatic cargo to be able to get the art in and out of the country. And 
it was, you know, an incredible exhibition that um, took place at the Dovzhenko Center in Kiev in 2019, and it was very well attended. And I saw just how much of a cult following Giga continues to have, and especially really in the former Eastern Bloc. Um, like we'll talk about the Polish tattooing scene yeah. at some point, I think. It's certainly, certainly in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, my first introduction to Giga was from a Romanian translation of his famous ARH Plus Tashen book. <laughs> so <laughs> it certainly filtered through, filtered through the Iron Curtain. Well, yeah, because I, I um, told you this when we were chatting uh, recently. I had the Death Machine poster on my wall at university. Um, and obviously, you know, huge fan of, of Alien and, um, you know, later on all the um, Jodorowsky crossovers and all the kind of things that, that would come later on. Uh, so it, it's really, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you about all this stuff because um, Giga's one of those artists, right, who lots of people know a little bit about him and I'll, I'll count myself in that group but not many people know a lot about him and certainly if they have an idea of his work it is as the guy who did the aliens um and probably not a huge amount more really right would that be a fair thing to say like i think that he has a he has a big reputation but probably for quite a limited slice of his work right it's fair to say that the alien creature is his most famous work and um it's uh, i think that 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 film is actually now part of the like national film registry, like it's preserved for Armageddon and stuff like that. <laughs> so um, it's something that I think most people are aware of, the alien. So the best way to tell people who Giger is, is to say, oh, he's the guy who did the game. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I'm sure Giger would have had like very interesting thoughts about his move, his creature being preserved for Armageddon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but I think, you know, that reflects, I mean, the alien is maybe 20% of his overall body of work over the years. And the really interesting thing about him is that um, he returned to the same topics over and over again, the same themes. So we see the same themes running through his work from the late 50s, kind of when he started, and all the way through to his death in 2014. So actually, the alien creature evolved as a concept, you know, through the decades, but it's really that 1979 iteration of it that really kind of tapped into the zeitgeist and became part of the, you know, the international subconscious almost. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like it's probably a topic for another podcast, but um, this, if, if listeners haven't seen the documentary uh, Jodorowsky's June about the abortive attempt to make June um, the first June film uh, in 76, was it? Or maybe even 75 when it they came the together. Never made greatest movie yeah. never made <laughs> yeah um and but out of the ashes of that absurd project came the team some of the team at least including giga and dan o'bannon and merbius and stuff who, who would go on to work on alien um but i guess like uh, before again my limited knowledge like what's his story before then like before he kind of becomes this you know kind of eager young uh, you know, broke ass guy coming to London to work with Jodorowsky um, in 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 the mid seventies. What's his story like? Where does he come from, and and how does this kind of you know style develop? Because it it's an all horrible cliche, and actually Tom and I 
uh, we're talking to our friend Paul about this the other day, this cliche of like before his time. Um, but I think Geek, you know, Geek is very responsible in lots of ways. And certainly as we come to talk about tattooing, I think this is true for like, you know, creating the aesthetic of uh, of a huge period of the, you know, 80s and 90s, you know, wittingly or unwittingly. But I, I'm interested in where it, where it comes from. I, w- I would argue with you, Matt, that while his art is ahead of his time, I think it is perfectly of its time as well in like what it's trying to convey. Like, I think he like perfectly captured a lot of the anxieties of the time in a way that no other artist would do. And it's funny, you like everyone mentions Alien, like my intro to Giger is through um, Carcass's Heartwork album. He did oh, yeah. like, all, all his like work with uh, like Celtic Frost, um, Carcass famously designing a microphone stand from John for Jonathan Davis from Corn, like through music and then through Alien because I didn't see Alien till I was like 23. Yeah, I didn't see Alien until my kind of um, mid 20s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my exposure to Alien uh, came way, way after I saw all his other mm. stuff. So I never saw him through that prism. Um, but it's, it's, it's fair to say that um, Giga is very much uh, a part of the visual culture of, of heavy music. I mean, going all the way back to the 60s and 70s, the other quite, quite famous example is Brain Salad Surgery, Emerson Palmer. And actually both of the paintings that um, became the cover artwork um, were stolen in Prague and they are still missing. <laughs> no. So, yeah, and so in some of the tattooing magazines that we've been kindly sent um, by the H.O. Giga archive, um, you can see that um, they're looking for those um, paintings and there's a $10,000 reward out <laughs> 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 to them. Yeah, so very coveted. Um, fun fact, um, Jonathan Davis's um, Egyptian mic stand is going on display in Paris um, at the Philharmonic in April. Oh, cool. They're going to do this amazing review of basically like the visual uh, the visual culture and anthropology of metal. And it's um, part of a trilogy of exhibitions. They had one on electronic music and one on hip hop. So now metal is like the third chapter. So I'm really looking forward to that. So that's going on loan. Um, that was one of the works that they're borrowing from, from the museum, which was super cool. Um, yeah, music, absolutely. And actually, I was at Cosmic Void Festival in, in London um, in late September, and the number of people that I saw kind of carrying Giga on their flesh um, at this you know, underground black metal festival just goes to show that so many people know who Giga is if they're into certain things. Just like, yeah. If you're into tattooing, you know who Giga is. If you're into horror films or sci-fi, you know who Giga is. If you're into heavy music, you know who Giga is. The list goes on, you know? So um, he is like the center of a moving wheel, which is kind of touching on Krakauer's theory, which got cited in an article about Joy Division, how they are the center of a moving wheel. Like so many things lead to Joy Division from other parts of, you know, the culture. And Giga's very much like that. And I think it's time to reappraise his legacy um, as not just, you know, the guy who did album covers or inspired awesome hats, but really to to see him on his own merit in his own terms as one of the most um, incredible voices of the 20th century in, in visual culture. And that goes across the different mediums. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that um, I, I find interesting about what you're starting to do and have been doing already, Miro, which is like to try and take Giga seriously as an artist, because he has been this kind of 
you know, cultural figure, although not particularly kind of acknowledged by any kind of mainstream institutional art, uh, uh, you know, co context, at least not um, in any kind of depth. I mean, so so where does he say, so what's his background? So, so he's Swiss, like, where does this stuff come from, I guess, like, historically, aesthetically? Like, what's his what's his story in his early life? Absolutely. Well, he was born in 1940 in Hoare, um in Switzerland, and um, his parents were a lovely bourgeois couple that, <laughs> that initially support his ambitions to become an artist, which in his father's eyes was synonymous with whoremonger and layabout. Um, his father <laughs> was a pharmacist. He held a pharmacy. He was also the chief of the local Alpine rescue squad. So like a, an upstanding figure in the local community. And so um, when his son expressed the desire to become an artist, he promptly um, sent him to uh, an industrial design college. <laughs> so and Very then, Swiss. Um, <laughs> he apprenticed with an architect as well. And uh, one of sort of his, his early tasks was to create drawings of Gothic churches and elements of Gothic churches that were going to undergo restoration. Wow. So a lot of what we see in his work, that kind of architectural sensibility, that world building sensibility, that kind of Gothic sweeping vertical, all of that comes from his training. So I imagine that... Um, had he not received that training, he might not have actually had the faculties to do what he went on to do. Um, his mother, Meli Giga, was really supportive of his work. And quite famously, she um, put one of his early paintings of kind of apocalyptic landscapes in a gilt frame and displayed it in the house. <laughs> and uh, there are some lovely, there's some lovely documentary footage of, um, you know, kind of Giga once, once he became quite infamous shall we say you know an interview with his parents being like so what, what do you make of all of this and they're like mm. <laughs> so it certainly it came from it didn't come from the family although an interesting fact that I discovered quite recently was that he actually had some Indian heritage so his great-grandmother on his father's side um, came from India and a lot of his, um, especially like his, the work that he did in the 80s, the Victory series, mm -hmm. these kind of really sexual women in red tones viewed, you know, either as if during the act or as if by a newborn baby coming, you know, out of the woman. Um, a lot of them um, seem to mirror the kind of the contours of Indian temples. So that there is something to be said about ancestral memory like i'm not saying let's go new age on this but there is something <laughs> coming through in his work that is not quite european is not quite swiss but it's rather you know something a bit more ancient yeah and i think it actually you know talking about him the whole like idea of the body as a machine and prenatal memory and stuff like that i'm sure we're going to get into it like later when we're talking like talk about People like Stanislav Grof and everything, but um, so he's gone to architecture school. When does he slowly begin that transition into, you know, being a artist as we know him now? 
Um, so it's really kind of on the on the 60s, 70s cusp. Um, he got into poster making. Um, so one of his um, friends, Kunz, um, he was the co-owner of Switzerland's first poster publishing company. And um, because his work really kind of spoke to that kind of psychedelic zeitgeist, um, especially sort of his Passages series, which he printed in editions in different color combinations, as well as his biomechanoid series, which showed kind of women, like female creatures blending into machines. Um, they, they started doing, obviously, the birth machine as well, although that is a tiny bit later. Um, but they, they did very well as posters. So um, it was, I think, a, a suggestion that he could actually make a living out of being an artist. And um, when he, was, he started receiving more and more commissions, he realized that he couldn't moonlight anymore. Um, so he quit. He quit his, his his first job, and he was already becoming part of the kind of Swiss counterculture, the Swiss underground. Um, he had many friends, um, and they were doing various things. So a lot of theatre people. Um, so Lee Tobler, his fated love, um, he met in '66, um, if I'm not mistaken. She had a lot of artistic friends. Um, they moved into a shared um, flat in Zurich. Um, they were he was kind of supporting her as she um, was an aspiring actor. Um, he also met um, different people who were interested in Freudian psychoanalysis. So kind of all of these ideas swishing around, and um, it's really um, through throughout his life he was kind of always meeting weird. Mm wonderful people who inspired him and and a really important influence as well is literature um i had the privilege of visiting his house in zurich in early oh, i'm so jealous uh, i'm so <laughs> jealous i had this yeah i had this most incredible uh, after hours uh, tour by torchlight um thanks to his widow carmen giga who is the director of his museum in gruyere um, and just you know, seeing the stuff that was that was on his shelves, there, there, it was a lot of literature. And initially, during his his relationship with Lee Tobler, what she used to do is she used to read to him while he worked. Um, sort of, she was kind of training her voice and you know for the theatre, but also inspiring him. So you'll see references to H.P. Lovecraft. Tolkien in his works. I mean, Alistair Crowley as well. Um, obviously. Um, you know, a, a lot of other authors, and then that's kind of a topic for another conversation. So, in other words, from the very start, his work was really um, intertextual and drawing on a on a bunch of different things. So it's little wonder that it keeps cropping up in these completely completely different scenes. And it's really, I think, with um, uh, with the uh, Alien film that he he attained this international reputation and. The things that he did following that, you know, his collaboration with um, artists like, I mean, Debbie Harry really uh, put him um, into into that kind of 80s, more inflected um, countercultural um, consciousness. And obviously the stuff that he continued to do for Hollywood, I mean, not all of it came off the ground, but another film that he did design was Species um, in the mid-90s. Um, and uh, he kind of continued to to work really until until his dying day. Uh, a big turning point was the um, launch of the Giga Museum um, in in the uh, in the late nineties, 
And he produced all of the fittings for that, all of the kind of furniture for that. And it was privately funded. So, um, you know, funded that. It was part family money, part sort of savings, but it was very much kind of his desire to create his his space, his world. And yeah. um, when a medieval chateau came on the market in Gruyere, um, <laughs> This is it. <laughs> so, so that kind of became a place of pilgrimage yeah. um, for him, and that's something that um, an incredible place again that I visited um, during their twenty fifth anniversary celebrations this year. Um, this summer, and it's um, it's just this incredible um, coming together of of all of it. Really, his visual art, his architecture, his his furniture, his sort of decorative design, um, and importantly, also houses his art collection. So, the stuff that. He enjoyed, and it has an exhibition space for artists who share that ethos, which is still mm. in. So, um, and just uh, just as a, a question, like he's moving it from the late sixties into the early seventies, and at this point, he seems to have already developed a very distinct visual style. Like, what is he both visually pulling from? What's inspiring him? But like, what's kind of obviously with Giger, there is a lot of like metatextual like you call them like light motifs throughout his entire work. Where is he kind of pulling this from? I know the story about them in terms of his obsession with, you know, Egypt about the story about going to see the mummy with his sister at, when he was quite young. But like, what is he really pulling from? I've also seen a uh, dark star where he talks about the, the skull that he got when he was six and dragging it along the ground with a string, you know, Absolutely. Um, another really important influence was music. In fact, jazz, like he was a hardcore jazz fan. He loved experimental jazz and the actual structure of musical instruments, such as saxophones, that kind of, you know, um, organic quality with kind of clavicles and mechanical bits, you know, that really um, influenced his work. And that comes out in his saxophonist sculpture mm -hmm. as well, um, where the instrument becomes the, the character. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, trains were another one. He was really into trains and in fact, <laughs> he built his own kind of uh, ghost train within his house that he yeah. was coming out of bed and go around the house. Mm -hmm. um, and he wanted to do, he wanted to recreate that in the museum. He basically wanted the museum to be one big kind of ghost ride. <laughs> but that sadly never happened out of conservation and cost concerns. Um, so that's another one. So kind of everything that we associate with kind of the long 19th century and industrialization, you know, the train is a kind of symbol of, of modernity almost. And uh, other things, I mean, certainly the work of other artists. Um, he loved the symbolists. He references many of them, um, most famously Arnold Birkeland in his work, Art Nouveau, so, so architecture, um, I mean, the Gothic Again, architecture, sacred architecture. Um, I'd say um, there is a great deal of kind of anti-clericalism in his work. So actually coming from a Catholic canton, uh, a sort of Swiss-German Catholic canton um, in Switzerland, um, and, and growing up in that time where there was certainly a move away from, from religion and that continued to, um, to, to fuel him. Um, but another, um, I mean, another influence really is um, the women in his life, the important relationships in his life. And you see how the, the features and kind of the shape of the Giga woman changes over the yeah. year, depending on whom he is sharing his life with. 
Um, so really the, the, the feminine, you know, the female form and in the same way that it inspired Art Nouveau, you know, the sinuous kind of um, opium smoke aesthetic of Art Nouveau was very much kind of inspired by by the new woman. So all of these influences really, really kind of come together, but they do so in a kind of very individualistic way. I mean, there are imitators, but there's only one Giga, right? Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Sanoderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Sanoderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Sanoderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Sanoderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Sanoderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Sanoderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Sanoderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Sanoderm products or for more information. Another really important influence behind Giga's work is the Swiss landscape. And quite famously, one of the reasons he didn't do a lot more work for Hollywood is because he refused to move there. He would not betray <laughs> native Switzerland with its rolling hills and valleys and mountain peaks for the uh, Motopolis of LA. He was just not prepared to do that. He loved Switzerland and most importantly, he loved Gruyere. And that is where, where he is, is buried um, within within earshot of the of the museum, actually. so It, it seems strange that, because on first sight, his work doesn't seem particularly pastoral, you know? Like, I, I can sort of imagine a universe in which Giga's very excited by LA. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the kind of rolling hills of Switzerland um, doesn't... Si- you know... Um, well, no, uh, but not, before the, you the, say that, Matt, the, I, think word, it, I, I think it actually makes sense, because when you look at his art, like, there's there's not a whole lot of hardness to it. Although he's like yeah. playing with motifs of like 
like metal and synthetic like you know yeah. materials it's not concrete it's no. i i would call it like you know the exact opposite of brutalism that it has this like soft curvature although it's made with these hard cold materials you know the word you know the word nostalgia was coined initially to describe the um sensation or the or the or the malady that swiss soldiers had when they were away from the alps <laughs> right like i can understand them yeah like it was literally like why are these young swiss boys like so sad it must be because they can't hear cowbells anymore right like that was that was the initial that was the original kind of like diagnosis of nostalgia was in um swiss swiss uh, uh enlistees being far away from far away from home and they, they did think it was either the altitude or the lack of cowbells that was causing the nostalgia the kind of homesickness so um yeah, maybe 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 Giga was worried about that. He didn't. He he wanted to be near the cowbells. He wanted to be near the cowbells. I mean, he is <laughs> Heidi country, so it's yeah. it's all there. It's all there. But he he works with the landscape a lot. So if you look at the construction of sort of the the, the visual universe of of Alien, but also of the greatest movie never made, Jodorowsky's June, a lot of that is very the way the landscape is constructed, there's a sense of the mountainous, there's a sense of kind of undulation. Um, and he had, you know, entire, entire series dedicated to, to, to these spaces, which are, you know, they are not urban. So they could be distant moons or they could be landscapes seared by, by nuclear weapons, but, but still it's, it is nature, even if it's destroyed, it's still, it's, Natural. Also, in the in when you look at his landscapes, the idea of like monumentality as well. That I think you look at anything in the Swiss Alps, and you can just be overwhelmed with this scale. In the same way, when you look at his paintings, when he's drawing, like well, when he's painting, you know, large pieces, this this idea of like something so big that you're like looking up at it in the same way you look up at a mountain. And I guess his work. This is something I'd be interested to see what you think about Miro. But like, I also don't think his work is at least straight, not straightforwardly dystopian you know like there's there's not um there's not an, an there's not an obvious or kind of like didactic dystopianism in his work i mean there's certainly some horror and some um anxiety you know some sort of techno anxiety in places but uh, but but it's not exactly kind of utopian he's not kind of in these biomechanical forms and things he's not um uh, he's not a kind of fetishist of cyborgs for example but at the same time it doesn't feel like a kind of you know straightforwardly horrific right i agree with you to me his work is much more representative of states of mind than of actual kind of imagined scenes so for that reason i i, I don't really like the label fantastic realist um because what giga is trying to convey to my mind is a kind of a new sensibility of hyperconnectivity, of of greater technological intervention, um, quite importantly in the human body in the form of contraception, um, and that he was actually part of the kind of pro contraception debate in Switzerland. Um, he has um, sort of political, like almost political cartoons that are sort of praising, you know the the ability to control whether a woman conceives and stuff like that. So kind of moving beyond this idea of, of, you know, what is it? Um, the famous, uh, 
Kinder, Küche, Kirche, you know, yeah. <laughs> and then moving beyond that and saying that actually women can be creatures of leisure and pleasure in their own right, you know, that they can control, you know, when they choose to, to have a family. That was seen as extremely radical and arguably still is in Switzerland, where I think like the last canton to give women the vote did so in like 80 something or 90 something, you know, yeah. I my facts ready, but very conservative country. Um, so, so certainly, like the technological does not necessarily mean the singularity. It can quite literally mean whether or not you can legally have an IUD fitted. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I think, yeah. it, I, I think well, it's an interesting um, kind of connection. And once again, me making big brain connections of. You know, um, Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow and the idea of metalism, that like the fusing of the body with the machine, whereas like Pynchon proposed that as this kind of like fatalistic and kind of nihilistic end to techno like the progress of technology, whereas I feel like Giger has this kind of, I wouldn't necessarily say optimistic, but it's much more, I don't know. It, Accepting. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like forward looking. Uh, looking at the future with anxiety, but not necessarily not necessarily despair. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, there's a lot of that in the kind of culture at the time, right? As well, like think about William Gibson in particular with Neuromancer and Cronenberg. Um, they, yeah, that, and I think that's to move on to tattooing. I guess is what I think so interesting about where tattooing like f finds so much influence from from Giga because. Uh, you know, from kind of inspiring, perhaps even kind of, you know, completely kind of, you know, inventing that biomechanical style that would become so iconic of the 90s to I was thinking about, you know, Paul Booth in particular, who I who I saw. I've never seen those photos, Miro, of Paul Booth and uh, with Giga. I thought that was really incredible. And Loretta Lou, you know, Swiss tattooing kind of matriarch at that um, <laughs> meeting of him as well. Um, but I was really surprised, even as early as like 1989, uh, to see that spider web, you know, artistic tattooing, you know, um, forefather of kind of conceptual tattooing, was interested in geek stuff in the in the late 80s. And it's it's it seems that the tattooists who took up his style, either directly or or, or in the the styles that came in the wake of that, were also not. It's not straightforwardly horror. It's not straightforwardly sci-fi. It's not straightforwardly kind of dystopian or nihilistic. It has this kind of almost kind of seductive, you know, Balladian almost as well. You know, I think it's no surprise that um, the, the 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 guy that edited Modern Primitives uh, in in the nineteen eighties also was obsessed with J.G. Ballard. Right? These these kind of body <laughs> body modification new generations of tattooing beginning in the late 70s early 80s are combining with this ambiguous perspective on on technology and 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 the relationship between technology and um uh, and bodies like it's not it's not straightforwardly i think and again i think a lot of the way that naively this stuff might get written about is as like you know techno utopian or kind of transcendent of the flesh or something but actually giga's kind of ambiguity uh in that space is one of the things it seems to me that was perhaps so exciting for the Taiwanists who um who found his work so inspirational we see a real shift between the 70s when his biomechanical style really launched yeah. and the 90s 
um, in the sense that in the 70s, he was looking forward and sort of, you know, looking forward to a distant and fearful future that wouldn't be a reality uh, aesthetically yeah. or for most people to the 90s where it is the culture, it's the style, you know, the matrix uh, yeah. you know, really set the pace for, for the 2000s in many ways. It's not just the 90s, it's beyond that. Um, and people are actually starting to talk about cyberspace in the mainstream. It's no longer the purview of, of I don't know, scientists. Or the military. Or the military, indeed. So um, it, it does seem like um, every kind of subsequent generation of, of Giga fans or collaborators and or collaborators discover something relevant in his work yeah. for the times. Um, I mean, on, on the tattooing stuff, AI I was quite interested to see how kind of connected he was to that appropriation and use of his work. Like, he obviously shows up a lot in tattoo magazines and, and you know, as we just mentioned, was meeting with some of the, the tattoo artists who were most responsible. But I was also struck by, and again, I hadn't seen these, some of the photos that you, you sent over from the 60s and 70s of like body painting projects that he was the doing. Body art. I had no idea so about So beautiful. Yeah. It's so good. I had absolutely no idea about those and that that was part of his practice. Can you tell us a bit about those? And like, because I think uh, I'm sure that people like Paul Booth and Guy Aitchison and Bob Tyrell and all these people like didn't know about that stuff either, right? They were consuming Giga through Alien and through posters and through Tashin books. But like, it seems that Giga's already sort of aware that his that there's something interesting about the canvas of the human body with his you know aesthetic and then with his political sensibilities. So yeah, can you so talk us about talk us through these body painting projects? Because the first one that you sent pictures over was from was from 1967. That's right. So um, as I mentioned, Giga was part of the kind of Swiss underground art scene. And a lot of that was kind of about crossover projects. So working with theatre people, with musicians, yeah. um, with photographers. And this was uh, happening and in the European avant-garde at the time, the, the Vienna actionists at exactly the yeah. same time in 67. There are, there are people in Berlin and in Paris uh, and in London doing similar stuff. I, presume, I don't know if Giga was tapped into those networks, presumably uh, at least peripherally, right? These kind of avant-garde performance networks of the 60s and 70s. He was certainly aware, as his library attests, um, and um, he was always interested in in just kind of weird stuff. Uh, <laughs> so he, he wasn't just about you know producing artworks and installing them for the bourgeois' enjoyment or disgust. Um, he was all about kind of doing like collaborating with people that he vibed with. So so these kind of body paint, painting projects came 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 out of those collaborations and some of them would have done been done in his studio in Erlikon. Um it's a northeastern uh, suburb of of Zurich where his his house still is um and um some of them would have been done um in galleries or kind of in other spaces and documented um and yeah the idea of the human body as a canvas is really one that runs through his entire body of work uh, like a stick of Brighton rock uh, yeah. because that is what his work is all about, really, that kind of the merging between um, organicity and anatomy and technology. But it's it's fair to say he's interested in technology insofar as it kind of affects the human body 
um, and a lot of his um, a lot of his artworks are about the merging, the actual merging of the human body with technology, whether in a kind of sexual act like the early biomechanoids or in the form of kind of new species like the xenomorph, which still kind of has elements of the human anatomy. I mean, he's still kind of standing on two, or it is still standing on kind of two legs and kind of has arms and a head. Um, So the body painting kind of preceded that and it became more and more sophisticated because if the um, 1967 works were kind of a lot more kind of free form and um, kind of painterly, if we look at his collaboration with Debbie Harry in 1981, so um, her and Chris Stein actually came to Giga's home and studio uh, to to work on the Cuckoo video, where he created this this specific like bodysuit for her and kind of facial uh, makeup. Um, there's a book that just um, came out um, detailing that collaboration, and if anyone is interested in in that, um, like do look it up. It's called Metamorphosis, and it's about kind of that entire collaboration and the importance of kind of body art um one thing i should say it wasn't just about the body so he was really interested in in facial features and kind of how they can be transformed artistically but also how can they uh, how they can be kind of brought up almost in a in a pareidolia sense yeah because these 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 pictures of um debbie harry don't look like debbie harry like at all if you if you no. didn't know they were Debbie Harry, it'd take you a while to realise that it was Debbie Harry um, with this incredible painting on her body. In the earlier stuff, you see that there are also um, he's also working with the with the male body. Yeah. Um, so it's not just it's not just women, and there there are some really cool pictures in in the archive of Giga having a mud bath in a like in a in a resort in Switzerland. <laughs> where- entirely covered in this in this mud and like he's taking pictures of that and documenting it so he was clearly really interested in in kind of in that really in transformation um of the human body and um and it's fair to say like he was a pretty hands-on individual like it wasn't just like pretty much everything that he sketched out he would then try to implement so like the ghost train like initially it was a sketch but then he actually built it with his own hands so Anything that you know he can get his hands into and be very hands on with, he would he would try to to put put in action. And it's kind of a very hands on, tactical, um, spontaneous form of art. I mean, you should arguably you showed me pictures of his house where with all of his sculptures and all of his like he's clearly kind of building a you know a world around himself, even in his in his domestic spaces, let alone in his art- artistic spaces, right? And I, th- I think as well, like something that particularly with the body painting that connects to tattooing quite a lot is you can see kind of links between the way he paints the body and the emergence later of like we talked about the other evening, Matt, with the modern primitives movement. Like it is using kind of design motifs that you could see be influenced by quote unquote tribal designs and traditional tattooing designs in terms of like actual tattooing or scarification and it like it kind of is this i don't know techno primitive techno tribal kind of idea yeah and that was something that you know politically was quite divisive i think in the tattoo community you know the the kind of relate well, again this kind of utopian optimism thing is continues to be a a, a you know dividing line between 
you know, different sections of the tattoo community. I mean, do you do you get a sense, Mira, on the tattoo side of things, um, that he was he into it? I mean, like, obviously, he sort of he, just from the interviews of him with him in tattoo magazines, and he's clearly kind of excited uh, and interested by the fact that his designs and his work is inspiring tattooers, but. I, I don't know if you you have any thoughts on what he thought about tattooing per se. I mean, he he said he was interested in his own body. Um, I do you have a sense of like what he thought about tattooing himself? Like whether he whether he was sort of just interested that other people were were using his work, or whether he had some more direct kind of artistic engagement with it. So um, from, from the research that I've been able to do from secondary sources, essentially, it's clear that he was interested in tattooing as a form of counterculture, as a kind of subversive form of expression. Yeah. And um, he went to tattoo conventions at one point, like he was actually a part of the East Coast tattoo scene. So in the mid-90s, he went to, to, to Incredible, Incredible yeah. NYC. He went to Woodstock. I mean, all of this stuff is documented in the tattoo magazines. Um, and um, he kind of gave a few short interviews where he was kind of very positive about seeing his work, um, not just um, copied by tattoo artists, but even recombined and interpreted. Um, there's a bit in one of the magazines where he said, um, if it's not done well, then he feels sorry for the person wearing it. Which <laughs> so is something that you've mentioned a, a bit on this podcast, so I'm sure um, that, that you can agree with that sentiment. Um, so he's, he's quoted um, as saying, tattooing is an underground art. I started paying attention to it only when I was shown images of my old paintings, yeah. mostly the airbrushed ones, so the ones from the 70s, on people's arms, legs, backs, or other parts of their bodies. Since then, I look through all the tattoo magazines <laughs> to find new variations. He's really interested, but it's a self-interest. Like he's interested in tattooing insofar as it's tattoos like of yeah, his that's what, that's That was, I think, the, the, what I was getting at with my question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's clear, like, um, uh, it's clear people were, you know, Felix Liu uh, was tattooing stuff based on or in Giga SL from the early 80s. Like it's really clear that... Um, uh, a generation of like you know post 70s tattooers when you know the, the kind of postmodern era of tattooing begins i suppose like begin to begin to really really lean into um to what he's doing and become super excited about it like uh, i definitely saw you know particularly after again paul booth in particular um it became so famous and so influential for doing that kind of big horror black and gray stuff but of course like anything any art not just tattooing the, the the bad versions of that the kind of diluted versions that are done by much less skillful artists with much less care um yeah it's the kind of thing that i mean all tattooing is easy to do badly but like that that very dimensional black and gray that's making kind mm -hmm. of at least moves to use the anatomy of the body for its structure um it's the kind of thing that in good hands like booths um it's absolutely spectacular in in bad hands like your average local tattoo artist <laughs> it's not going to go so well agreed and actually giga said in one of the interviews that 
uh, a good tattoo should move with the body. Yeah. So he was really aware of the plastic dimension of tattoos um, based on his on his painting uh, on his artworks. Um, a really a really obvious link between tattooing and Giga's work is the airbrush and the tattoo gun yeah. and how similar they are in, in principle, but also in the way that they look. And I think he that appealed to him because um, watching the process, I mean, there are quite a few pictures of him watching people get tattooed at like conventions. Like he was clearly kind of fascinated by the parallels there. And the, um, the tattoo gun appears in some of his artwork. So it's not just a yeah. case of his being tattooed onto people's skin it's a case of tattooing inspiring his his own artwork so um i think he did a he did a series of the birth machine babies where um they are actually holding tattoo guns yeah. um in the earlier work it's kind of ambiguous what it is that they're holding but in the sculpture editions that he did of the of the birth machine babies it's clear that they have kind of like a like a cable going yeah, yeah, from yeah. the Oh, from the need don't of- say don't say tattoo gun. You'll get cancelled by the tattoo industry. Tattoo, tattoo, tattoo machine, tattoo machine only. No, I think I think you're yeah. Because also, and I want to come on to Eastern Europe in a second as well. But on that kind of interest in the in the process of tattooing, the other thing that's always struck me about his work, and I I hadn't totally connected it until you you were just talking. His work's quite bloodless, right? Like it's not very um. Although I'm, you know, there is definitely kind of sadomasochistic elements in it, and there's definitely kind of um, uh, that kind of fleshy embodiedness to his work. A lot of the, a lot of the kind of, you know, um, uncanniness of his work is its kind of bloodlessness. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting to me that yeah, maybe that, that he's, he says you said he may you know sort of getting interested in looking at people getting tattooed because actually his work doesn't have a lot of or any that i remember like kind of um you know corporeal violence in it it doesn't seem to have a lot of blood or you know biological pain obviously in it even whilst clearly there's a kind of undertone or even overtone of that in the work right i think if you look across the spectrum of his work there are certainly scenes of torture and penetration whether with objects or organs um He's he was definitely sort of uh, you know gr- gruesomely interested, but also scared of all of this yeah. stuff. It's kind of that duality where you know you you kind of you put your hand over your eyes, but you're kind of looking through the fingers. You know there is a sense of that. Um, so I wonder if if that element almost of kind of torture practice appealed you know appealed to yeah, to but it's quite sense. it's quite kind of it's as I say quite kind of bloodless, right? Like it yeah. it has kind of penetration and it has um interaction between the mechanical and the and the biological but in in a way that is not i don't know cronenbergian for example or is not um it's not body horror well, in I, the same I th- way well i i think maybe the difference between where cronenberg and uh giger uh, diverge is that like cronenberg it seems much more is about like the uh, not introversion but the the kind of like the foreignness of something in the body that isn't supposed to be yeah. there whereas like his work seems like these are organic things that have developed naturally um you know and it's funny because um 
Games Workshop, the developers of Warhammer, completely misinterpreted his work when they used him as the inspiration for the Mechanicus, because the Mechanicus have robot parts put on them, and they've said that Giger is a huge inspiration, but I don't think they really understood it. Yeah, I mean that we could, we should, we can probably should do a whole episode about Games Workshop because that's also sort of interesting. <laughs> no, we will. They, they will send lawyers after us because they fucking hate anyone doing anything with their property. I wonder if the sense of bloodlessness comes from the fact that most of his work, most famous work, is monochrome. I think that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. black and white, which is why it looks so great as a tattoo because the transition is is almost minimal yeah. you know from that kind of airbrushed monochrome image to kind of a, a an ink tattoo mm-hmm. and i think i think as well there's a certain inspiration of like aero design as well like i know he studied architecture but like the kind of smoothness of aeronautical design and the smoothness of the way the machine intermingles with the human in his artwork i think at that time when you're moving from the 70s into the 80s there was the movement away from the kind of clunky large design matt's gonna interrupt me in a second i can tell uh, of the 50s and 60s moving into this kind of futuristic design of the 70s onwards where like everything seems like natural and ergonomic and it's like seems to be flowing from one thing to the next. Well, this comes back to something you said earlier on, actually, as well, which is that, tat- and I say all the time, that tattooing reflects the visual cultures around it, right? And so, yeah, tattooing in the 50s is not very popular, uh, well, not as popular as it had been potentially in the 20s and 30s because visual culture is much more modernist and and, 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 and sleek and kind of less interested in, in filigree and, and, and fuss. Um, and I think, yeah, as you know, as as the kind of visual culture universe that Giga is injecting himself into, like through film and through posters and through graphic art and other things, like that's the kind of thing that then, yeah, creates and responds to the context around it. Uh, mm, and I, I think as well that something that definitely kind of inspired, I think, a lot of musicians and people like Celtic Frost rightfully took from it is that his art is menacing in a way that doesn't feel threatening. It's menacing because it's so alien, (laughs) alien and unfamiliar that there is this kind of, there's a familiarity of form, but it's so abstracted from what's real that like, I think a musician, someone like Celtic Frost could look like that. And they were trying to make music that was so intentionally away from everything that was familiar that they kind of connected with it, obviously because Tom works, worked and still works for the family. That's very true. I've spoken to a few people who have Giga tattoos. Um, so at the 25th anniversary celebrations at the museum, HR Giga and Gruyere, they actually had two tattoo artists working um, during the like during the festival. Um, Dirk Binder and Denise Del Conte, a German and a Swiss um, a tattoo artist. Um, so there was kind of uh, like a real space in the in the program for acknowledging the fact that um, there is a kind of an offshoot of of Giga's world, which is tattooing, which I think is is great, really. And when I spoke to people who already had tattoos, and quite often they would have gotten them at other anniversaries at the museum. Yeah, my real question was sort of what made you get Giga tattoos, right? And almost invariably, 
it's not a very like thought out answer. It's, it's very kind of obvious and intuitive because it's beautiful because it looks great. So what Giga fans across the board agree on is that his work is aesthetic. It is beautiful, but it's the kind of aesthetic that doesn't appeal to everyone. Um, but the people who get it, they really get it. And they think it's the most beautiful thing they've ever seen. And that's certainly how I felt when I first came into contact with it. Um, and how like a lot of people who really got into it, like even like Ridley Scott, who, you know, a copy of the Necronomicon slid across his desk when he was despairing <laughs> about how to kind of design the alien universe. And he was like, this is the answer. This is it. So Giga is clearly like, it, he's the answer to a question we can't quite formulate, but <laughs> that answer is it's beauty rather than, than, than any of the kind of more intellectual frameworks that we use to kind of explain what he's all about. Um, I, I, I want to, ask you a sort of following on from that a little bit of like what what is it about the real interest in his work in eastern europe then because like lots again lots of the tattoo magazines you sent over are from um uh my friend piotr's magazine tattooage in uh from poland like and, and obviously you encountered him um in the context of ukraine like what uh, uh Boris from Hungary back in the early 2000s, a really important kind of, again, pioneer of this style. Um, and even today, like a lot of artists from um, Russia and from the former Eastern Bloc, like seem to be working in a kind of black and gray style that is at least, if not directly, in the legacy of Giga in, in tattooing. So what is it particularly, do you think, about Eastern Europe and, and, and post, post-Soviet um, Europe that is particularly amenable speaks to you know that, that Giga speaks to there well Giga is a figurative artist yeah. uh, he is not an abstract artist and he is someone with great technical skill and I would say like in the former Soviet Union especially where kind of the, the visual paradigm remained figurative where kind of modernism didn't really touch uh, visual arts um, and socialist realism uh, maintained that kind of 19th century tradition of academic painting. Um, the appreciation for figurative art, it never waned. And another important element, I think, is especially kind of in, in countries that are predominantly Orthodox Christian, um, the, the kind of the influence of, of icons, of kind of, of that sacred, of that, you know, visual language of, of sacred art um, that affects um, what people generally tend to think is aesthetic. Um, so, so, so for that reason, Giga doesn't seem uh, as... Um, there isn't, I think there are fewer critics <laughs> than in the West. <laughs> you know, there is a kind of uh, consensus that everybody should have moved on from this already. I mean, please. we spoke, you know, so we no spoke um, uh, a, a while ago to uh, Julia about tattooing in Spain. Right. And um, obviously, like, there's this kind of persistent idea in, in tattoo scholarship about the tattoo renaissance in the 70s, which I'm... I'm very skeptical of, um, historiographically speaking, but in Spain, it makes real sense because they didn't have any, really any tattoo industry until after Franco. And interestingly enough, that coincides pretty much, uh, with this general idea of when the tattoo Renaissance is meant to have happened in the early seventies. And I wonder if there's something similar going on with 
the kind of you know the kind of ice. I mean, not that not that it was completely isolated artistically from everywhere else, but like actually, Giga's Giga's very popular in tattooing and otherwise in the late eighties, early nineties when glasnost and perestroika and the end of the cold war uh and the fall of the Berlin wall etc is happening right so it's sort of a bit of an interesting historical um coincidence is probably too strong but like this is this is the thing this is almost the first stuff that's that, that that's available um if you're you know if, if if you're starting a tattoo shop in poland or in um uh, the Czech Republic or or you know in in Slovakia or whatever in like 1991 or 1992 if you're buying tattoo magazines from America or Britain or France or Germany you're going to see stuff about about Giga or about biomechanical stuff in general and that's going to be the hottest coolest shit on the planet so it, uh, there's a there's I wonder if there's a historical kind of just coincidence there that the first moment that you're able to have a visible tattoo industry in the in eastern europe is also the first time that well at the same time that giga style tattooing through the works of paul booth who you know as i remember being on the you know pretty much every tattoo magazine ever and like opening up those magazines and going oh my god i've never seen anything like that in you know 1992 1993 that i'm there were people the same age as me 13 14 year olds in Poland and the Czech Republic and anywhere else having those same experiences, right? Very much so. And there's a lot to be said for kind of aspiring to catch up. Right, yeah. Uh, with with yeah. the West. And in, in, in many ways, Giga represents something Western European and refined and sort of untouched really by, you know, by by any kind of association with 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 Soviet authorities, yeah. and, you know, you you had an amazing episode about you know Russian criminal tattoos. Um, a great fan of Fuel Publishing um, contributed to their Looking for Lenin book um, yeah. about um, the removal of Lenin statues from public spaces in Ukraine. And you know that that is an example of a of a tattooing language that is you know almost a part of of that culture, even if it's kind of an undercurrent. Whereas Giga represents something completely right. different. So if you're going to horrify your parents by getting <laughs> a tattoo, <laughs> you want to do it in the way that would make you become a part of a youth culture that is Western, really, you know, and has no associations with the criminal world in, yeah. in the former And I guess it doesn't have a huge amount of association with um, like mainstream Western culture either for the reasons we you talked about earlier on. That it's He's this guy who has had this did have this huge long prolific career but was really almost exclusively taken seriously by you know subculture and by hollywood and and not by not by mainstream visual arts which you know is is a topic for another day in a way but that, that there's that helps him be visible and accessible and you can buy books with his stuff in you know from any bookshop um, certainly you could in the in the nineties, but at the same time it's not kind of it's not boring and mainstream and conventional. It gets to be kind of both popular and underground almost at the same time in some ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder also about kind of the wider context of um, you know, like if you have a giga tattoo, it is likely that you're into heavy music or bikes. 
it is likely that as a guy you have long hair or no hair and or, <laughs> you know it is likely that you like other cool underground shit it is likely that you may be wearing leather you know so it's kind of it feeds into a you know a way of life an aesthetic sensibility that goes beyond tattooing beyond art it's kind of like a you know kind of like a, a club almost um the the other film i mean we mentioned dark star but there's the other film H.R. Giga Revealed has a great number of tattoo artists um, commenting about, you know, how important he is. I mean, almost all American, if I remember correctly. Um, so in many cases, I don't think it served his um, artistic reputation to be championed by <laughs> members of the tattooing scene. Um, and that's something that, you know, I think the, the Giga Muse estate is, is certainly aware of. Um, at one point, there was a book in the works, um, H.R. Giga Under Your Skin, and it was supposed to come out in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. And kind of the guy behind it was uh, Leslie Barony, who was Giga's U.S. dealer. And the project never, I mean, the idea was to take photos of Giga tattoos around the world and kind of show how, you know, Giga is, is this, you know, kind of influence behind tattooing art. And... Not everybody in Giga Circle was in favor of this project. Um, yeah, and there were different reasons for that. I mean, one objection that was cited was that, you know, we don't need to encourage those people anymore. Like, <laughs> we want to, you know, like they are already with us. You know, what we need to do is, you know, we need to pitch to kind of serious institutions and actually elevate his reputation. And this book would do the opposite. But the other really interesting bit, and I think, Matt, this is something that you, you have spoken about, is this idea of ownership. So, you know, someone close to, to Giga who was working with him kind of raised the objection. So you're basically publishing this book and giving people license to like steal your work because they're not paying you, are they? So what is this all about? You know, this is not a savvy business move. And arguably Giga's entire life was about figuring out what the savvy business move should be and doing the exact opposite. <laughs> But but you know it never it never happened for for that reason because you know who has ownership of those works you know is it is it Giga for having created that original is it the tattoo artist for having you know you know created the tattoo is it the person carrying that that, that tattoo that's part of their bodies well I would say that the Church of Giga is a broad church and. <laughs> welcome and it's not about pushing certain people or certain groups of people out it's rather about letting more giving more people access and we are kind of in a new phase of of um, promoting Giga's legacy uh, 2024 marks 10 years since his death and in many ways it's sort of long enough to have a little bit of distance and um, kind of historical distance and seeing his work as a whole. Um, so a lot of that work is about having his work featured in reputable art institutions. Whether or not tattoo fans come is not really the issue. They are very welcome. It's more about, you know, art. Um, but we're not really at that stage yet where Giga is dissociated from underground culture. He's still kind of very much um, a part of that and primarily celebrated 
within the underground culture. I mean, that's not a monolithic thing, but um, but that's sort, of, that's sort of what I mean. Um, a really cool thing I wanted to mention um, as we kind of wind down is the fact that um, Kiko was mentioned in, in a novel by William Gibson that was published in 1993 called Virtual Light. Do you know about this? So, um, so William Gibson was Giga's favorite sci-fi writer. And yeah, he, you know, he's the author of Necromancer, Mona Lisa, Overdrive. Um, and there is a dialogue set in a tattoo parlor in the year 2005. <laughs> yeah, and it goes, Lowell, he's got a Giga. A Giga? This painter, like 19th century or something, real classical, biomech. <laughs> So, you know, it's, um, <laughs> so Giga is, he's kind of echoing into the future, but he is now kind of part, part of the past. And, and the enduring appeal of Giga is that he has this fluidity, you know, it, he could conceivably have come from the 19th century from Art Nouveau, but then again, he could also have come from the distant future and, you know, had been transported to us by means of a time machine. And yet he was a guy who grew up in bourgeois cantonal Switzerland in the 50s and 60s. So, <laughs> so it's really time will tell, um, but um, his work, I think, stands, stand on its, stands on its own two feet and is able to defend itself um, by virtue of its quality, whether or not it attracts weirdos. <laughs> Thanks, Miro, for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, where can people find you online or read your work or find your work? Oh, absolutely. I'm on Instagram and Academia, and you can find me uh, by searching for miroslava.hartmand. I'm sure if anyone sees any Giga-related event that's happening in the UK, you will probably be there. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. As I've said, huge fan of the podcast. Many, many good years to you. Uh, thank you very much. And if you enjoyed this episode, I have to give a shout out to our patrons at the £10 and above tier. Let's see if I can do it in one breath like normal. Morpheus Ravenna, Chris Chris Block, Shit Jesus, Kirsten Wright, Kathleen Burkhardt, Jordan Best, Jess Goodman, James Schick and Charlie Lightning. I can do that better now because I quit smoking. Uh, thank you to every one of you and thank you to all our patrons for listening to this episode I also forgot to do the intro at the start like I always fucking do um, and yeah uh, if you ha- don't already follow us on Instagram Beneath Skin Pod thank you very much goodbye goodbye